So uh, we're talking today about voice. And voice is something that I, you know, I've only recently come to see as a connecting line between a lot of the different work I've done. So before I started in academia, I was a freelance musician and arts educator, um, working particularly with group-devised music making, so participatory music making in all sorts of community contexts. And some of that work um, took place in Europe um, during the 1990s, and then some of it took place in, and continues to take place in Melbourne and then in other parts of Australia. Um, there was a mention in the blurb for this particular seminar that I had these formative experiences as a young musician working at, at the Pavarotti Music Centre in Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina where I, up and prior to that, I had been working in these participatory ways, but I hadn't really been sort of directly confronted with what it might be to be in a place where music held so, such additional meaning as a, a space of safety or a space of expression or a space of rebellion um, and many other things besides. So that was very much a turning point in my musical life, but also then later something that I came back to research and to, uh, in order to understand further how this work happens and the kinds of oh, different sorts of lines of power that it intersects with. So voice is this concept that I've become very interested in, um, partly as a musician because I think a lot about voice as, as one of the sound elements that we get to work with. So through story and song, things can be shared, voices can be placed into different spaces through recording, through sound art collaborations, um, all of these can be seen as platforms for diverse voices. And, and much of my work has, has been interested in what those platforms might look like. Um, one project, for example, that ran for about 10 years in Melbourne was um, with young people, children um, from in primary school predominantly and also secondary schools who were recently arrived in Australia. So. Um, some were uh, migrating with families, some were coming in as humanitarian entrants, but all of them essentially were being displaced as children. They had no say in that, um, no opportunity to influence necessarily the timing of it. Um, and so they all came with stories of displacement and of resettlement. And this project, Lingua Franca, was both about songwriting, instrumental music, and also working with language to create musical spaces where all of their language and musical resources and the stories they brought with them could be integrated and then also be a, an experience of sort of bringing their past selves into their present self and then also starting to imagine um, and integrate their future selves with these histories in what we hoped would be very affirming ways of, of resilience and strength and, and possibility. Um, another project which this photograph comes from and also the photograph we used for the seminar is from the Boonaba country, um, northwest uh, Australia. So it's a remote community that is a majority Aboriginal population. And I've been working up there uh, with Aboriginal elders and um, educators, uh, early childhood educators, in a context where their traditional languages are greatly endangered. So you would be aware, I'm sure, um, given this is part of Norway's story, of the various assimilationist um, policies that have meant that indigenous languages in many parts of the world have become gravely endangered. Laws about who could speak and when they could speak or whether it was even safe to teach your children um, your traditional language meant that many languages didn't get passed on or those, those um, transmission patterns were disrupted um, in ways that really have left uh, 
big gaps in, the, in people's knowledge and opportunity to speak. So our project in Fitzroy Crossing is to write songs in, in, in these what we call heritage languages. Some of the elders with whom I'm working are, grew up speaking this language, but others are still learning their language. And so it's a process where uh, very much a learning space, but trying to create opportunities for songs and language to be part of children's everyday lives. So they're singing in these songs, and the songs are part of their daily routine in early childhood care. Uh, oh, what have I done there? Press the wrong button. There we go. Okay. Um, so I think when I think about voice, I also think about it as about as as a, there's a, such a thing as vocal space. The amount of space we're able to take up with our voices, to speak, to use our voices to tell stories. The connection between voice, songwriting, and language rights and language justice, and also that transmission of cultural knowledge that ensures um, cultural strength and also helps to um, sort of uh, strengthen its, its transmission and, and continuation of those knowledge um, pathways. And then I also think about voice as a capacity or as a form of freedom. So it's this capacity to vocalise thoughts, to give an account of oneself, to have a say in issues that might affect you, hopefully also to be listened to. Um, but this notion, this understanding of voice is something that's very socially situated and different spaces create um, different opportunities for voice. Different social norms determine who gets to speak and who gets to be listened to. And so all of that, I think, is something that can be encapsulated when we're looking at voice as a resource in, in music projects, but also in peace building work. Um, there was a project that I led for Save the Children in the Middle East um, in 2021 that I'll just share um, couple of stories from. So one of the things we did with this project, we were invited to use arts-based research and we proposed songwriting to explore the experiences of voice of adolescents, in particular adolescents who um, had uh, histories as uh, Palestinian or Syrian refugees living in Lebanon, uh, Turkey and Jordan. Um, and we created with them this socio-ecological model of how an adolescent voice might be experienced, that there's the voice that's in your head, the, which might be different to the voice you get to use within your family, different again to the voice that you might use with your friends and your peer group, different again to the vo your voice in an online space, and then moving outwards from that, what kind of voice do you have in school or in the workplace or in a religious institution, or when you're out buying things in, in sort of... Uh, different kinds of transactional spaces, and then also in the wider society, in the wider political environment. And so the young people are invited to think about their experience of voice in each of these spaces and share stories of both positive stories where their voices felt strong, but also stories where they felt they had no voice or their voice had been silenced or quietened down. So this is, um, and there's the methodology, I won't go into detail now though, I can elaborate on it later, but it was one where as they shared a story, which was often something very simple, quite a short story like this. Um, and then they were invited to give it a metaphor or ex to summarise that, that experience for themselves in some way. And this particular story, the, the um, child gave the metaphor of the turned-off TV. So something that has lots of capacity, but in a way is waiting for someone else to switch its on button or its off button. The same workshop group created... Um, this list of metaphors. And so their next task was to say, what kind of story or song might connect all of these different words? How might we bring them all into one arc or one narrative? And this is what they came up with, a song called White Gazelles. It's very short, so we'll have a listen to it now. 
Another aspect of my research has been looking at projects that involve some kind of encounter between two groups. And so we might think of this as a space, as music as a space that creates um, a, the possibility of a dialogue, a form of dialogue where there's a collaboration across dividing lines, um, where dialogue can be understood as a, a shared communication process that's, that's intended towards increasing understanding between different groups and also as a space for relationship building. Um, the different projects that I've, I've been part of or researched which work with this kind of model, um, they don't necessarily engage with the wider politics. They don't necessarily name the reason why there is this line of division between the groups involved. Sometimes these projects are conceived of as a space that's allowed to be conflict-free. Uh, that is a relief from the wider conflict that might be shaping people's lives. And the image here is from the Mitrovica Rock School, uh, which I was researching in 2019. And that is an, they have actually rules within the project about what sort of content is, is okay to bring into songs and what sort of political content actually needs to stay out in order to protect that space as a conflict-free space. I hope we'll talk a little bit more about this possibility of voices in dialogue because it's, it's not um, without its issues. It's, it can be a problematic space. And that leads me to some of the ethical questions that I think come up when we start to talk about voice. Because while voice is often thought about as this very liberatory thing, a space of freedom, uh, it's also possible in, in all kinds of projects that are purporting to put forward minority voices, that actually vo those voices are being used to um, reproduce some kind of uh, inequality or, or injustice, um, uh, to reproduce their, their subservience, if you like, to a dominant narrative. So any examination of voice needs to also be asking about who's listening, the context for the vocal space, and whose terms it exists under. So who has decided the terms for this particular vocal project? Um, voice and story require quite sensitive handling um, in order to make sure that those with whose 
those with lived experience of a particular injustice are being centred and amplified, and they're not being appropriated or colonised in ways that are going to reinforce those unequal power dynamics. And so if we think about this idea of giving voice, that does that. It's a paternalistic idea that frames, um, frames someone as being the giver, somebody else being um, given their voice. And really, the adolescents in uh, the project in the Middle East that I worked with very much pushed back against this. And that idea of the turned-off TV or one of their other metaphors, silent lions, really sets that up very clearly. We have voices. We have voices, you're ju we're, not just, we're just not getting heard, or our voices are being muted by other forces. So very much not one of giving voice, but one of thinking about agency and, and recognising uh, this is a space that, uh, where voices, voice may be muted um, or denied rather than being given and, and, um, and you know, a space being created by somebody else. Um, also within the arts projects, I think we need to be, I've learned that to, to think really hard about the fact that if I'm in a lead artist role, then that is also a decision about whose voices are being included or whose voices are, are louder or quieter. And this is quite literal. I, if I think back to a project I did about 20 years ago, uh, which was a project with um, a community in Melbourne um, in relation to a public housing project where there were some major changes happening. So that the project intention was to use photography and storytelling and sound art to really represent this community or for them to represent themselves in these different ways. Um, but as the artist, I was creating these sound art tapestries of recorded voices and stories. They, some were in English and some were in other languages and I was sort of weaving them through and making judgments about which voice should be prominent and when it should be brought back into the background. And when I listen to that work now, I feel really uncomfortable about those choices and the fact that I did that unilaterally, that this wasn't something that was done collaboratively and a choice that was made by the group, but something that where I took other people's voices and changed them. So as an artist, we have responsibilities, um, deep, important ethical responsibilities to ensure that when a voice is shared or a story is shared, we're not story takers, but we are, we are creating a, a liberatory space as much as possible. So... Um, and the last thought is about um, extractivism, that uh, as artists and as researchers, we can take voices in order to serve a purpose that we have decided. So similar to that arts project, there is a responsibility there to ensure that um, when a voice is offered, it's a, it's a gift and a responsibility and not something to be taken lightly or, or manipulated in ways that serve another agenda. So... This is, um, I'll just close with this slide as a, as a backdrop to say voice is a really powerful resource in peace building and also in, in music work. Um, we can think of it as, you know, Cavarero, Adriana Cavarero is a feminist philosopher who asks us to think of the voice as something that is unique and unrepeatable, something that is part of the uniqueness of it, every human being. And it's also this vast pluriverse, she calls it, which suggests it's a form, many forms of knowledge and ways of knowing and doing can coexist. So I think that that is a powerful idea for and a powerful resource for us as musicians and as peace builders and for work that is trying to bring those two worlds together. Um, but it also comes with considerable responsibilities. So looking forward to this dialogue today. Thank you. Do you want us to sit with you already? Or? Yeah, if you want. Yeah.
Hello everyone. Yes, the microphone is working. That's great. So I'll be taking you to a bit of a, a different context. I think Gillian did a, an excellent job in you know, framing, providing some definitions, and also speaking from a researcher's uh, point of view. Uh, I'm here representing Masahat, which some of you might know. Uh, Masahat for Arab culture in exile. Um, and I'd like to first start making a few opening remarks and speak about what Masahat is, uh, you know, why it was established, because it very much relates to the question of the voice, the, voice, the voices of the diaspora, and particularly the Arab diaspora in Norway, and the impact that we believe uh, we uh, are having on building resilient and strong and potentially more healed diaspora communities in exile and how we uh, use cultural tools and the arts for that end. So Masahat was established in 2015, uh, 2015 by Syrian activists that sought to inform the dominant Western analysis and debate on the Syrian war in Norway. Masahat is actually an Arabic word for spaces, and they are ones that we sought to create primarily for marginalized voices. The founders of Masahat noticed that mostly Norwegian experts uh, were invited to speak about the events in Syria, uh, and thus Syrians were largely marginalized from the conversations being had about their country. Uh, but Syrians were actually far from being voiceless. Uh, they were just not given the platform uh, to voice their opinions and concerns beyond uh, rare invitations that were extended to Syrians as you know, so-called native informants framed as usually as non-objective, emotional uh, victims of the, of the war that could be drawn into the conversation solely uh, by virtue of them having family or roots uh, in Syria. And even in those instances, uh, their voices were limited uh, by the platform's problematic uh, framing of them and restricted to, you know, sound bites, recounting uh, misery and grief, but rarely analysis or, you know, aspirations, demands. And this goes back to Gillian's point on, on the, the patronizing kind of top-down nature of those giving voice. So sadly, what was noticed was that this was not really limited to the case of Syria, but it was extended to uh, other MENA co contexts and conflicts, and, and most certainly also beyond that. Uh, we noticed that, you know, Yemeni, Palestinian, Lebanese, and other voices were rarely included in the debates and in the conversations about their countries. Uh, the marginalization of the voices from the region also enabled, uh, you know, consolidating this image of a plagued Middle East, one of, you know, destruction and conflict. While the image that we have as those coming from the region or those who have been to the region is one of a thriving and rich arts and culture scene, warmth, hospitality, and so, so much more. And the fact, that, uh, the fact is actually that the MENA has a history of uh, healing through particularly musical practice, uh, be it through tarop, which is the genre of musical ecstasy uh, that was carried by icons uh, like Um Kulthum and, and Fairuz, uh, and that had also very much of a unifying and mobilizing effect on the Middle East in the 60s and 70s, to more ritualistic practices like Gnawa, Stambeli, and Sufi music in, in the Maghrib. Uh, and so Masahat was actually established stemming from, these co from this context and these observations. So the context we operate in here in Norway uh, is not one of active conflict, let's say, uh, but we exist and we operate because of the active conflicts in our home countries. So Masahat is really an extension of diverse experiences of conflicts in the region. 
Uh, and our primary goal is to contribute to a more diverse Norwegian public debate and more inclusive artistic and cultural uh, scenes in Norway. Our flagship uh, project is the Masahat uh, Festival for Arab Arts and Culture, uh, which is an annual festival uh, where a series of art exhibitions, panel debates, reading circles, concerts, and so on are organized on a yearly basis. With regards to uh, now maybe the, our impact uh, on uh, you know, justice and healing, which is uh, our, our topic today, uh, I want to make two points. The first is that arts, uh, we notice, play a role in community building, particularly among the diaspora. The various events that we've organized uh, have been widely attended by the MENA uh, diaspora inside and outside of Oslo and also across Norway. The cultural spaces that we've created somehow strengthened the social fabric of the diaspora and brought them closer to home. When you find your community, especially in the diaspora, uh, collective grief, collective strength is, is cultivated and it somehow shortens the distance between your physical homeland and exile. And uh, as mentioned, an effective tool that creates these inclusive spaces for both expression and dialogue is arts and culture. After the film screenings we do, the reading circles, uh, we always have open discussions to allow for uh, community building, storytelling, sharing the voices and so on, and to consolidate a sense of a collective rather than an individual, uh, let's say, refugee, asylum seeker in ice cold uh, Norway. So a sort of cultural intimacy uh, is created in these spaces. The second point uh, I want to make is, uh, or actually before that, I want to speak a bit about uh, the participatory nature of some of the, the art practices and events that we organize. Um, because we also, in Masahat, collaborate with other diaspora groups, for example, the Latin America diaspora group. We collaborated on this kilt stitching project where participants would embroider messages on, on textiles that would be stitched together to create a solidarity kilt. And we also actually sat down together a few weeks ago um, and uh, collaborated with uh, uh, the art school Kiyo in a workshop led by them where we uh, worked on shaping clay objects and shared also our reflections around the situation in Gaza. So we find that these participatory art practices uh, are empowering and have some sort of healing effect because release and expression is made possible. Um, and we're learning a lot from also collaborating across art uh, disciplines and with other diaspora communities, as mentioned. Uh, and I should also mention uh, that we also have, you know, Norwegian audiences, uh, and that's also very important for us, uh, for the Norwegian audiences and the host community to understand the, the realities of people uh, of the various conflict contexts that they hear about uh, in the media. Uh, so the value of these artistic and cultural spaces that uh, Masahat creates transcend the internal diaspora uh, community building to actually activating citizenship within the larger Norwegian context, uh, as the work we do has an impact on, you know, belonging, participation, uh, and links to larger questions of representation and, and democracy. My second and the last point is that uh, arts-based programming actually enables surfacing uh, non-mainstream narratives, which we do need in order to have uh, a conflict transform uh, transformative approach. Art uh, somewhat allows you know, to correct the narrative and, and showcases you know, the various lenses through which you can understand and interpret 
realities of injustice, um, and it mediates you know, the missing narratives and really inspires critical reflection in a way that can edge us closer to better understanding what justice means uh, for diverse uh, stakeholders and how it can be achieved. And what we see is that the dominant narrative in the public space is usually actually dichotomous and, and it lacks nuance. So art can help us reflect on conflict and on solutions to conflict from different entry points that are often sometimes perceived as you know, too sensitive, unnecessary to engage in. And an example of this, which we all know uh, too well, is that diasporic uh, communities um, in conflict context and, uh, or from conflict context, they want to talk about the past, about justice, about memory, about trauma, while the assumption, the general assumption is that we need to move beyond. You know, it is con it's most conducive to just move on and look towards the future. And uh, quickly, uh, just to mention an example uh, before we, we start our, our conversation, uh, is when Masahat screened um, with uh, Human, the film festival here in Oslo, uh, a few films on, on Iran that looked at the role of memory uh, and trauma in shaping uh, the Iranian diaspora's uh, advocacy and narratives and, and voice. That's it for me. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot. Um, very powerful to have all these different examples. And of course, you're just touching on, uh, I'm sure, every example you could talk about for an hour. I wanted to first invite you to reflect on any comments or observations you might have from just listening to each other. Is there something that you feel is an interesting overlap or a contradiction or... Um, Want to go at it? I, I think it's very important. You know, you made some important points related to you know the ethical responsibility of those giving the mm. voice, and that's that's an issue that we also you know take very seriously. Um, we we don't want to have this top-down approach where we become an institution that also cultivates also an elite, uh, an elite of of voices uh, that uh, that are given you know certain opportunities for visibility and exposure and so on. We want to make sure uh, that uh, the spaces that, that we do create are as diverse and, and open uh, as possible. Um, and uh, the hope is really that, uh, of course, uh, the gatekeepers, be, be, be it you know, political gatekeepers or, or even the donors, uh, try to reflect a bit deeper on the ethical responsibilities. So I think that was a very important point mm. that uh, caught my attention. I mean, I think when I read about Masahat's work, when I knew we would be speaking together, then I, it sort of brought back many sort of uh, recollections about the, you know, the role of the arts in sort of both micro ways and macro ways that we have these sort of intimate intimacies that are possible. We have this com complexifying of narratives, but we also have platforms that can reach really quite large audiences. And so things like festivals, you know, are spaces in which all of those start to interact or happen at the same time. So can be really productive of a change, of some kind of social change, changing conversation perhaps, or, or diversifying of, of how space is used and occupied, the, diversifying the vocal space. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. One of the things that for me is interesting is listening to you is this idea of, on the one hand, uh, arts or artistic spaces. It's also about bringing people together and creating something. Um, which then becomes different when you start adding dialogue or transformation or 
So I'm very curious to hear more from you about even the, like mm -hmm. the title of this mm -hmm. event, which is quite grand in saying like arts-based uh, dialogue for justice, for for all these kind of intergenerational healing, uh, and how that relates to artists coming together and creating art in a way. Uh, <laughs> big question. <laughs> I mean, I guess the arts are a, are a way that we gather people. Mm. And that can be important if it's difficult to get people together. If you're trying to bring together people who don't want to come together necessarily, then the arts might be the, 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 the appealing thing that gets them to cross the threshold. And that might then create the possibility of a conversation. But it's really important to remember that that's kind of, in a way, all the arts might do. Like what happens next is going to be dependent on the context and the actors and, and the goals, the arts themselves. So things could go in a really, you know, conflicting and, and divisive direction. And there are lots of examples of, of arts being used to commit different forms of violence, um, harms against people. But they are very good at that gathering point. So it matters what happens next and who's in the space. But, but the arts won't necessarily decide that, mm. I think. Yeah, uh, I think uh, I can maybe reflect a bit on a context that I do know well, which is the Palestinian context, um, and uh, the role of the arts in cultivating particularly intra-Palestinian, let's say, dialogue, internal dialogue, uh, in the context of, of military occupation. Uh, so I was a violinist in the Edward Said National Conservatory Orchestra, um, and the conservatory actually has branches all over Palestine, in Jerusalem, in Nablus, in Jenin, in Ramallah, also in, in Gaza. Um, the, the Gaza Conservatory, uh, which, you, which you might know, was actually uh, bombed uh, a few times, and, and uh, the conservatory uh, recently uh, published an, an obituary uh, for uh, their student, Lubna, uh, who was killed in the recent bombing of Gaza. I feel it's important to kind of mention this political context that we are in when we're trying to also situate uh, the, role, uh, the role of the arts. Um, and what happened was that um, the, the conservatory worked on setting up a few orchestras. Uh, one of them was the Edward Said Youth uh, Orchestra, uh, and that gathered students from all of these branches apart from the, the one in Gaza, because Gaza was, of course, uh, and still is under um, blockade. Uh, so we were invited uh, to come together, and this also included uh, Palestinians from Israel, uh, from, from the Galilee and the north. And what happened was we were brought to together in summer camps regularly uh, from across the fragmented territories of, of Palestine uh, to play one sound in unison in an orchestra as a collective. And that in itself was actually uh, very powerful because as Palestinians, we have you know, severe uh, mobility restrictions and are subjected to policies of territorial fragmentation. So we had the rare opportunities to connect uh, with each other and understand and you know, engage with each other in a dialogue to understand each other's different realities. So the fondest memories uh, I have are from, you know, as a musician in Palestine, are from these summer camps where we gather for days to you know, rehearse and, and bond and, and in the informal settings, we'd, we'd form strong relationships. And this format, um, and of course the music that we created, would, would somehow defy and resist these policies of, of fragmentation. And we also, of course, came together spiritually through the music that, that we created. And we realized that we had you know, maybe some misconceptions about each other uh, that we were able to correct, correct but at the end of the day, you know, 
through uh, the, the orchestra as, you know, the main vehicle, uh, it, it became a sort of, uh, you know, nation-building uh, uh, internal uh, dialogue uh, forum, uh, which, is, which is very powerful. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. But you also each had examples of, or like ethical questions of how you really have to be careful with this, especially when there's such strong power asymmetries or where structural context is so unequal. Um, do you have maybe examples of that, but also ways of countering it when you're actually uh, operating in that context? And I think both of you have examples from uh, where, uh, on top of that, you're also personally positioned in that space. So how do you... Uh, what are the risks and how do you actually uh, deal deal with them? I'm only asking huge questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I can talk a little bit about, about the Mitrovica Rock School project, which is a project of Musicians Without Borders. And I was involved in as a re researcher as part of an evaluation team that uh, interviewed young people and, and um, was present for one of their summer camps. So the Mitrovica Rock School um, brings together ethnic Albanians and eth ethnic Serbians who live in the city of Mitrovica, which is one of Europe's divided cities. So it's ethnically segregated with majority population on one side and majority population on the other. And, and um, it's of course, nothing is ever as clear-cut as that. There, there are pockets um, where there is a little bit more mixing in terms of how people live. But in general, that's how things work. And to cross from one side of the... To, uh, to from between between sides can be risky, can be stressful, can mean that you feel very observed. Um, and there are, and the, all the institutions of the city are run separately. So um, schools are, schooling is separate. They, the languages are not similar at all. Um, bilingualism is very rare. So in this kind of context, um, it's not unusual to grow up and never meet somebody from the other side of the city, and it's really quite a small town. Um, so the Mitrovica Rock School started in order to create a, a musical opportunity for young people to form rock bands, write songs together and record. Um, and they did this, initially they did it by going off to do a summer school in Skopje, next, next door in North Macedonia. That was a great success because being in a third country, a third space, created a sense of freedom from all of those rules that governed young people's lives. And... It's, that's not to say it was easy that everyone could just, you know, release themselves of the um, concerns they might have or of the stereotypes they had in mind, uh, but it did create a space in which they might start to have different kinds of conversations and build a more complex understanding of the identity of each group. And initially, um, when the students said, we want, to, we want this to continue, uh, Musicians Without Borders had hoped they might be able to have a school in a single site, but... Of course, the, the context didn't allow this to happen. So they set up branches on either side of the city and very slowly, very gradually, through very incremental decisions by monitoring the political situation to see what might be tolerated, they started to experiment with things like can members of a mixed band, initially they, they would only meet on Facebook, as in, in an online space, and then meet in Skopje. But was it possible for them to rehearse together? And so working out how maybe they could make that safe for the young people they might start rehearsing together. Was it possible for them to make a music video together? Could their faces be shown? And all of these sort of decisions are taken one step at a time, little by little. And as the political situation softened, then more ambitious ideas were, were tried, uh, such as having one of the mixed bands perform in Mitrovica itself, which was, uh, you know, 
one part of Kosovo that's often, you know, where violence is very likely to, much more likely to flare up or it's much more prone to hostilities breaking out. But of course, things can be wound back as well. So part of that responsibility is, is recognising that question of safety or having that really in the foreground all of the time, both for the students, primarily for the students, but also recognising that anything that should go wrong really jeopardises the whole project itself. It brings the whole thing into question. So it's really delicate work. Um, but as I was saying, it's, this is a space that's... A, they, they've created it to be a conflict-free space. So there are other projects um, that I've... Uh, where I've talked mostly to facilitators or practitioners at this time, not participants, um, that have been taking place in much more um, elevated or and unequal spaces where I think that question of safety and of the suitability of this, this encounter project um, hasn't necessarily been engaged with as closely or has been engaged with and has led to the decision that this is actually not safe, this is not sa safety can't be assured or it's just... They don't, the group itself doesn't have the tools to deal with the political reality that the young people are living within and it's not responsible to continue it. So I think these sort of dialogue projects, they're often, they can be really um, emblematic, you know, they have really powerful symbolism. They, and they offer, as you were saying, you know, this united voice, this, this, these bodies of young people symbolising the future and cooperation coming together to play orchestral music. It can be very emotive, very powerful stuff from an audience's point of view. Um, but one part of my work has been to really try and look at things, at the different kinds of pieces that are being created in a single project. There might be piece of some kind that the audience is receiving or consuming, but it's not necessarily reflected in the experiences of the participants who may be needing to, to navigate things in very challenging ways. Yeah, just to add, I mean, I think particularly in context of power asymmetry, it is much harder to create these conflict-free kind of apolitical uh, spaces, even, uh, you know, uh, within uh, arts and culture. And um, I think, you know, it would make sense to maybe approach this uh, in two ways. So the first is just to look at how arts is perceived by um, uh, you know, the, the strong party in a conflict, the, the, the oppressor, let's say, um, as, as some sort of a security threat. So how arts are, are securitized and politicized by the strong party and also, you know, silenced. Uh, we know maybe uh, a few s stories from the first Palestinian uprising, the, the Intifada, where um, a, a very well-known um, music, Palestinian musician, Suhail Khouri, was actually smuggling folklore uh, cassette uh, music, uh, protest music, uh, in the 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 in the back of his his car from city to city, and at the end he was arrested. Uh, you know, so so we see that arts, and of course the the new you know watermelon Palestinian watermelon symbol also emerges from the story where even the colors of the Palestinian flag. Were, weren't allowed to be used in, in the arts. But then the second is, is about, uh, the second point I want to make is about, you know, artistic uh, dialogue projects between the conflicting parties. So if we take this context, it would be then, you know, between the Israelis and, and the Palestinians. And I think it depends on the framing of the project. You have dialogue projects and then you have coexistence projects. Now, dialogue, uh, the dialogue framing, I think it has more, more resonance as hard as it might be, 
uh, it's very much you know necessary to kind of at least understand perspectives where they stand so on and so forth despite the sensitivity however i think the coexistence framing is is toughest and particularly toughest on the weaker party because it's as if the you know weaker side is is expected to just sit there and kind of uh, accept their oppression and, and coexist before uh, any uh, systemic change uh, actually takes place to kind of equalize. And of course, there are measures that, let's say, that these event organizers can take to equalize. But in the reality, you know, you know in the back of your head that we aren't necessarily equals when we return to our reality. And I think the, a, a very a well-known example of this, uh, and here I'm speaking a lot about Palestine-Israel, but this is a context that, that I do uh, know well, is the West Eastern Divan Orchestra, right? That was established by Adur Saeed, a Palestinian intellectual, and the Israeli uh, conductor, Daniel Barenbaum. And it actually brought Israelis and Palestinians and Arabs from other countries together in one orchestra. Now, it wasn't too successful, let's say. I believe it's still uh, going. Uh, but a dominant perspective on especially this, these kinds of projects is that, okay, the trombone player that is sitting you know, behind you, uh, who you, know, you likely you know, mingled with and socialized with and got to know, might end up the next day on the checkpoint asking for your ID and c having the power having the power to control whether or not you will be allowed to go to hospital, to school, or uh, you know, to, to, to go about uh, on your, with your daily life. So the orchestra might make you equals, but the reality does not. And this is why I think at this stage, when we're talking about you know, arts-based dialogue projects, it's, uh, there are two priorities within such context, uh, especially in, in uh, context of power asymmetry. Uh, the first is to safeguard and support uh, you know, the creative arts and freedom of expression. Uh, and the second is to nurture spaces for internal uh, dialogue, uh, particularly among fragmented communities. Yeah. I have another example, actually, which is from US border. And then Sorry, I, I would like to, to take some questions. <laughs> yes. but just the, the person I was speaking with, Emily Amrine, she used to run um, choral projects where uh, people from the on the Mexican side of the border, predominantly asylum seekers, and US citizens who cared about asylum seekers would come together and sing together across the border fence. And she said, I, I, should, I want to preface it by saying that she told me she just she cannot do this kind of work anymore. She said that felt she realized very strongly um, that there was not that the for the those on the U.S. side of the fence there was very little to lose, and in fact they saw that action as the social justice itself. Like mm -hmm. they could walk away saying, "I have done my bit," whereas for the people on the Mexican side of the fence, nothing really mm -hmm. was changing. So that power asymmetry is, we, we like to think art transcends yeah. and maybe on some level, on some experiences, there is a transcendent possibility or, or experience, but it's certainly not able to um, overrule the power of those political forces that mean that that fence exists and one group can walk away and feel that they've done something meaningful and another group find that their situation hasn't changed and in fact they've been an instrument of the other's redemption. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think with that, <laughs> I open up for some questions. We'll take a couple at the same time. Uh, and what always happens is that people keep quiet and then all the <laughs> questions happen. So who wants to be the first? It's related to the ethics of art and, um, art and uh, sto like stories and music or anything. So uh, I was thinking, 
most of the time, like uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission work of storytelling also involved like criticisms of opening wounds and not giving not giving time enough time to heal. Mm. So is it involved in this process as well? Like, can we think of like that? I think it can. Um, one of the things that um, I've heard said, that, uh, that has been said to me about music in these contexts, is that it does invite a degree of self-regulation in that the storyteller has, you know, has options of, of the extent to which they want to tell their story or share their story in a symbolic way, in, as a metaphor, as an allegory, in sound only, or for it to be very representative of, of that experience. And that there are different ways as well of participating in other stories. Um, that music, the music experience has a number of different sort of entry points, if you like, from simply listening to uh, clapping but not necessarily singing along, to singing along, to inventing. To, so there's sort of a number of ways that that experience might um, be something that the, the storyteller can decide for themselves, uh, which adds to, adds to its potential safety. Uh. Just uh, to quickly reflect on that uh, kind of uh, opening wounds and then leaving them open uh, and not having, uh, you know, not doing follow up or, or assuming the responsibility to actually ensure that uh, uh, those wounds will be able to be dealt with, <laughs> transformed, uh, sealed, and so on. Uh, it reminds me uh, of, you know, the dominant critique within, let's say, the peacemaking field in general that you go, you get an agreement, and then you get a negative, not a positive piece, right? You don't, you don't actually lead to a transformative kind of healing change that addresses the root causes of the conflict. I think this, this same responsibility also applies to those within arts and culture, um, and how, how it can actually you know, happen in practice, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but I guess it, it, there's an element of continuity, there's an element of having to work in the long term, there's an element of really trying to build something, build the community uh, that can also, you know, uh, check up on one another and, and empathize. Hey, my name is Cole. I'm, I'm also um, an artist. And this is a topic that I think is really interesting to, to talk about because of the role of the artist has, has, can have this kind of, take this responsibility and, and put it in play in, in community work and, uh, especially working in public space, what does that mean? Um, but the question that I I'm really want to kind of ask is more about when it comes to the responsibility and then when it comes to the framework and how, how that framework is set and how it's clear and the transparency, how, what, um, what comes out of it, right? There's this thing of, yes, there's a project and the aim is to bring people together to have a dialogue. And you had this, the question of the aftercare, <laughs> right? Mm. What happens after? But I also want to ask the question of more like the sustainability. How can the people that were involved in this project continue the project without the people that introduced it? I think that's mm -hmm. something that I think is very interesting to 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 talk about because... We often think as an artist that we have to be present uh, in order for the project to be realized, but people have that in them as well. So Yeah. Um, the songwriting work up in the northwest of Australia is is an example of that. It's 
Oh, it's, it's, really it's a really interesting question. I, my hope always is that we will... Uh, so I go up there twice a year. It's far from where I live. So it's four and a half hours in, by plane and then I drive for four hours inland. So it's in, in European context, it's quite a long way. Um, in Australian context, it's just to the other side of the country. <laughs> um, and the, the women I'm working with, um, we speak of them as song... They speak of themselves as songwriters. They are the songwriters in the project. Um, they are the song owners. and they are the, the ones who decide what song is needed, what story it is that should be shared, how that song should be made. Um, there's a recording studio in town where there's a lot of capacity to support people to record their songs. Um, thus far, I, I still... It, very little happens if I'm not there sort of... Um, and that's not because I'm pushing people around. It's just when you arrive, then you become a catalyst. Every, it's, anything that intro is introduced into the community potentially catalyzes different things. So somebody coming, especially someone who has pre-existing relationships, um, it's a continuation of conversations that um, were paused last time I was there and, and, and now can continue. My hope is that over time, younger, the younger educators we'll see this going on. It will sort of, we're normalising the possibility that as part of your role as an educator, you are also a songwriter, you're also a book writer. They have a lot of creative projects in this kindergarten. It's an amazing place. Um, and maybe they won't be songwriters, but they will be book creators. And some might not be book creators, but will be songwriters or will be illustrators and painters. Um, lots can, lots does happen, particularly in those text and visual arts-based ways up there that doesn't involve anybody from outside. The music stuff does seem to sit in a tricky space, and some of that's about... Um, a lot of it's about confidence, I think, as your own musical confidence. Um, in the Australian context now, I think there are an awful lot of people who have internalised the idea that only certain special people get to be musicians and everyone else should just consume or... or take part. I come from and work within a community music um, paradigm or way of thinking um, that says we're all musicians and we all have musical capacities and it's a it's a innate human capacity that can be nurtured and nourished and, and supported. It might not be this current generation who really internalise that, but they will be modelling for younger ones that possibility. So I think if we think take a long view, then um, and and if that sort of that input is consistent and is only there as long as it's wanted. Um, you know, so if you're not invited, that's the time to stop. <laughs> and if people's capacity changes, then then that's the time to pause. Um, but it feels to me like it's a lifetime commitment from me as long as it's wanted, um, as long as it's invited, because it is a long-term process, long-term project. And if I if I have that trust and it takes time to build the trust, then that's not something to take lightly either. Um, yeah, it, sustainability is a real question. You just try and keep trying to, I, trying to build it, trying to build capacity, confidence, um, and inviting, you know, creating a, an inviting participatory hospitable space. Yeah, I think it's a very important question to ask, especially, you know, in the structural setup of these projects, right? Uh, ownership, as, as Jillian mentioned, uh, and uh, self-sustaining methods or practices 
um, where uh, more of uh, you know a collective responsibility can can be nurtured. Um, if we look at the music scene in, in the Middle East and again in Palestine, uh, the the hip hop scene is now entirely dominated by independent uh, record labels, uh, and they've actually made it. Uh, it you know they've made the number one hit uh, in the Middle East all independently from seed funding and so on. So uh, there, there is a realization that there's a need to you know bypass let's say the gatekeepers of these artistic initiatives and and to you know assume responsibility and ownership um, if this is to be you know uh, to have a transformative impact we have space for one or two questions yes on that side thank you thank you for a very interesting conversation my question is um thinking about visual arts, I know that the topic here has had to do with, with voices, but then in the process we got to speak a little bit about other types of arts. And I'm wondering to what extent some of the lessons that you're speaking about can be sort of just laterally translated into other types, for example, visual arts, murals and, and, um, and drawings and visuals other, from, from what you know, your experiences in, in this space. Is it the same um, type of application and framework that we'd be talking about, the concerns then that we have in <coughs> in voice, is it the same that we'd potentially have in, in visuals just from your own experiences? Is it homogeneous? Is the art space homogeneous, so everything artsy? Or is it sort of uh, broken down into silos depending on the type of art, whether visual, oratory, or spoken, or whatever other kind of art? Thank you. Mm. I mean, I, I think the principles of ownership uh, sit within a participatory art space and there are different ways of creating participatory art. So in, um, there's what we might think of as the, in Melbourne, some colleagues call it the bollards project. I mean, bollards are those um, concrete kind of things that uh, block vehicles from entering a road. And, and so often there's, there'll be projects that um, paint those or place um, tiles on them, create mosaics. Um, and that whole design might come from the artist having a vision and then each child places their square exactly where they're told and that's the participatory art project. Or there's the participatory art project on the other end of the spectrum where the whole, the concept, the space, the, the medium, the, the story, everything is decided through um, some kind of collective or participatory effort where there are opportunities for voices to come through and the artist might... Maintain responsibility for ensuring this is, this artwork gets made, but relinquishes that control over what the content might be. Um, so I think, for me, the voice question comes in there. I think when we're talking about photography, then we also develop. When there are other issues to to deal with, or anything that's really clearly representational, so that the idea of someone's image being used, I think, has a similar set of ethics around it to their voice being used. Um, and we could probably tease out lots of what we've talked about today around voice um, with relation to imagery. Yeah. No, I think that was, uh, you know, a great point. I think that the visual arts, they claim space in a different way uh, than, than voices. Uh, it's, it's very much in your face if you talk about, for example, street art and graffiti and so on. Um, so, so the impact and effect it has on the receiver uh, is, is different. So I wouldn't say that it's homogenous in terms of also impact and processes. Mm. 
Thank you all so much. I want to invite everyone to stay on and, uh, and, and chat. I think we have a very nice uh, group of people uh, gathered here. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Chiara and uh, Gillian, for thank excellent you. introductions and a lot more to be discussed. So hopefully you'll, uh, you'll hear from us about new seminars coming up. So welcome next time again. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.